Second Samuel chapter number 15. The text that we're going to study tonight can be broken into two parts. Uh, the, the first third of the chapter, verses 1 through 12, this is very important for us to get. They reveal, it reveals the evidence of God's punishment for David's sin. We're talking about the sin of chapter 11, the adultery of Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah the Hittite. The final two-thirds of the chapter, which is verses 13 through 37, they reveal the evidence of God's presence in David's life. The first little tiny part of the text is going to talk about God's punishment for David's sin. The, the greater portion of the rest of the chapter is going to talk about God's presence in David's life. So the title of the message tonight is this, punished but not forsaken. Punished but not forsaken. Think about this. We're four chapters and many years removed from David committing adultery and murder. Yet he's still having to endure the consequences for his sin. I found that that enduring the consequences for sin can be a very lonely place to be. There's the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment, and even the loss of trust and respect that are sometimes the immediate consequences for our sin. But even after you've endured the immediate consequences for a bad choice, wouldn't you agree there sometimes are these lingering consequences that seem to never go away? Situations that arise out of a, out of a decision, a bad decision that you made years ago. And God is forgiven. But you are still reminded of that decision. You still feel the weight of that decision. And that can be discouraging. That's where David finds himself. This is why God, though, though faithful to his word to punish David, was also faithful to his word to never leave David. So we're going to see him walk through a very difficult and dark time regarding the betrayal of his adult son Absalom. Yet God is going to walk through this with him and reassure David of his presence in some very tangible ways. Here's the idea I want to go to work on tonight in our chapter. God's punishment for your sin does not nullify God's presence in your life. This is so important. God's punishment for your sin does not nullify God's presence in your life. Let's read verses 1 through 12 of chapter 15. And it came to pass after this that Absalom, that's David's son. David had just let him back in the kingdom. He prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, of what city art thou? And he said, thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, see, thy matters are good and right. There is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, moreover, oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And verse 6 really explains uh, in a nutshell what Absalom's doing. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. We won't read the, the other six verses because I think this just sums it up for us. Absalom's re- revolt 
against his dad is not only just severe and cruel and wrong and wicked, but did you know that what we just read, Absalom stealing the hearts of David's men and trying to overtake his throne, did you know that is evidence of God's punishment in David's life? How do I know that? Well, look at the screen, we, or go back in your Bible if you want to chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. So Nathan the prophet said, David, thou art the man, you're the one that sinned, here's what's going to happen because of that. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house. Because thou hast despised me, hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. Isn't that what we just read is happening? Years later, but now Absalom's revolting against his dad. And that is a fulfillment of God's punishment in David's life. From within David's house, from his own son, a sword has arisen. That's got to be devastating for David to endure. Yet what we see in the last two thirds of the chapter is three episodes in which David, as he's fleeing, is met by a number of different individuals. And as you'll see, each of these three episodes tells us four things. It tells us the location. It tells us who comes to meet David. It tells us David's response. And then it tells us the response of the other person or group of people. Now, the writer of this book could have simply said this. So David and all who were with him escaped into the wilderness. That would have summed it up. David had to go. He he took time to just sum up Absalom in a few short verses. Absalom stole the hearts of of David's men. He could have done the same with, with David here. But he didn't. He takes 25 verses to detail what happened in each of these three interactions. Why does he do that? Why? Well, I believe God wanted to reassure both David and the original readers of 1st and 2nd Samuel and us in 2022 that he is with us despite us having to sometimes endure his chastisement for our sin. Consider the original readers of this book. That's the exiled believers. They they, they rejected God's authority in their life one too many times. And now they're living as exiles in Babylon. God was punishing them for their sin. And their punishment was not lasting a couple months. It was lasting a number of years, decades. Like David, they needed reassurance of God's presence in their punishment. So let's look at these interactions and learn something about how God reassures us of his presence. Here's the first. God gives David... A loyal friend to support him. Look at verse 13. And there came a messenger to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee. For we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. And the king went forth and all his household after him. And the king left ten women, which were concubines, to keep the house. And the king went forth and all the people after him and tarried in a place that was far off. And all his servants passed on beside him. And all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the Gittites, 600 men which came after him from Gath, passed on before the king. You see what's happening? David says, we got to go. Absalom's going to take over. For safety purposes, we got to get out of here. And a bunch of people said, okay, we'll go with you. We're going to be loyal to you. 
But yet one person caught David's attention. Look at verse number uh, 19. Then said the king to Ittai the Gittite, Wherefore goest thou also with us? Return to thy place and abide with the king, for thou art a stranger and also an exile. Whereas thou camest but yesterday, should I this day make thee go up and down with us? Seeing I go whither I may, return thou and take back thy brethren. Mercy and truth be with thee. Ittai was a a mercenary. He was a hired soldier from a Philistine city in Gath. The last person David expected to be loyal to him. Not to mention Ittai got there yesterday. And now he's willing to risk not just his life, but the life life of his family to follow David in flight from Absalom. And David said, go back. You're crazy. And I guarantee you, he thought Ittai would take him up on his deal. But look what Ittai said in verse 21. Ittai answered the king and said, as the Lord liveth and as my Lord, the king liveth, surely in what place my king, uh, my Lord, the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also shall thy servant be. This is amazing. Ittai, who barely knew David personally, makes a devil oath. One to God and one to David that he would remain supportive and not just him, but his entire family. Now, the irony is clear. David's own son, Absalom, whom he loaded with undeserved kindness, led him back in the kingdom, was now conspiring against him. While this stranger who owed him nothing in comparison was willing to risk everything in his cause. Are you getting this tonight? One person said, Ittai is an island of fidelity in a sea of treachery. Imagine how encouraging this was to David to hear someone pledge their loyalty when his own son just stabbed him in the back. There's a New Testament example of this if you know your Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16 and 18. I call him Anesiphorus. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, but David will know. Verse 16 says, The Lord give mercy unto the house of Anesiphorus. For he oft refreshed me, this is the Apostle Paul talking about, and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. Ittai was to David what Anesiphorus was to Paul. Not a well-known person, but incredibly supportive during a difficult time. Paul was locked up in chains, in prison for preaching the gospel, yet God sent him someone to refresh his spirit so as to reassure him, I'm still here. I'm with you. And God did the same thing for David, and he sometimes does the same thing for us. One of God's ways of supporting you is to give you a friend who stands with you in the darkest hour. It ties are God's gifts to his discouraged kids. Can you think of a time when God's done that for you? Sent you the right person with the right words at just the right time? I can. Sometimes it's been my sweet wife. Sometimes it's in my parents. Sometimes it's been a loyal staff member. Sometimes it's been an encouraging church member. Sometimes it's been an empathetic friend. But every time I thought I was walking alone, even during times in which my own choices made me feel like a failure, God seemed to put the right person at the right time with the right words right in my path. That's one of the ways God reassures me he's not done with me yet. When God does this for you, you stop and thank him for it. 
He doesn't promise to do this, but in his grace, he sometimes does. And when he does, welcome that person's support. People who are sulking in their failure will will often want to isolate themselves after a personal mistake. Don't be prideful. Don't be obsessed with privacy. Don't be self-reliant. Don't say, I got myself into this mess and I need to get myself out. No, let God's presence be demonstrated through the support and the encouragement of a faithful friend. May I say, you need to be looking for opportunities to be that person to others. God wants you to be an Ittite. Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken, meaning at the right time. It's like apples of gold and pictures of silver. You never know what a word of encouragement or a pledge of support might mean to somebody. Be sensitive to see who might need a word fitly spoken and and then do this. Actually speak it. Speak it. Nobody's encouraged because you think something nice about them. They're only encouraged when you say it, when you text it, when you post it. Be an Ittai because when you are, you might very well be a lifeline to that person on that day. God help us to get out of our own worlds and look and see who needs God's presence through our encouragement. After this interaction, he moves on to another conversation between David and the priest. Here's what we learn from the second interaction. God gives David faith in his will and wisdom to act. Both of these things are gifts from God. Look at verse 24 through 26. And Lozadok also, and all the Levites were with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. So they're carrying the ark. They're leaving. They're going with David. They've got the ark on their shoulders. And they set down the ark of God. Abathar, he's a priest. He went up until all the people had done passing out of the city. And the king said unto Zadok, carry back. This is what David tells him. Carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he thus say, I have no delight in thee, behold, here am I. Let him do to me as it seemeth good unto him. I I want you to get this. It's obvious that the priests are on David's side here because they ordered the Levites To to not leave the ark in Jerusalem with Absalom. He's irresponsible. He doesn't deserve it. Remember, the ark represented God's presence, God's power. They said, man, we want this to go with the real king. Yet David responded this way, take it back. Why? Well, because David's already learned his lesson about manipulating God through a piece of furniture. David refused to use the ark like it was some kind of lucky charm. Instead, he says, take it back. And then he decrees something. If God's going to restore me, it's not going to be dependent upon having Yahweh's furniture. It's going to be dependent on having Yahweh's favor. So he submits to God's will when he just says this. God's going to do what's good in his own eyes. If he spares my life, great. If he doesn't, fine. I'm okay at this point with with whatever my God decides. God's given him this gift. This gift of what? Settleness in God's sovereignty. This gift of like peace. Saying, I know that I brought a lot of this upon myself back in chapter 11 when I made a selfish decision. I know I deserve this. God's going to show grace on me, great. If he's going to kill me, great. I'm just going to follow what the Lord's 
going to do, some would look at David and say, what a quitter. He should stand up and fight. He shouldn't resign. But it's not resignation. This is submission. No gimmicks. No rabbit foot religion. No pilfering the ark for his own advantage. David is fully resting his faith in God's sovereign will. You ever been through a situation you couldn't control? Maybe not right away, but eventually God gave you the settleness in your spirit. God finally finally gave you uh, enough enough, uh, logic in your brain, enough, I guess, just Holy Spirit help to pull out of the emotion of the moment and to say within yourself, I can't control this. I'm just going to do the next right thing. I'm just going to trust in God. Anytime you get settleness in God's sovereignty, that is a gift from God to you. The kind of faith just to rest in whatever God wants to do with this situation. You aren't meant to bear God's load of what will happen to me. You're not meant to bear that load. You've got to get to the point where you're not going to use God, but you're going to humbly submit to whatever He wants and then be genuinely okay with it. But what's, what's amazing is that this is not where the interaction ends. He, he doesn't just give David faith in his will. He's going to give now David wisdom, the gift of wisdom to do the next right thing. Verse 27. The king said also unto Zadok the priest, Are not thou a seer? The question is yes. Okay, then go return into the city in peace. Act like you're going to be on Absalom's side. And your two sons with you, Ahimaaz thy son and Jonathan the son of Abathar. See, I will tarry in the plain of the wilderness until there come word from you to certify me. God gave David the wisdom to act. You got to get this. David doesn't just say, I'm going to trust God here and then do nothing. He trusted God's will. Then he acted in God's wisdom. What did he do? He told the priests to go back and position themselves in Jerusalem to where they could hear Absalom's plan. Develop a kind of network of spies, if you will. And when you hear what's happening, come and tip me off as to what I should do next. In other words, while David trusted in God's sovereignty, he didn't neglect his personal responsibility. I've heard the phrase, You know what? I just got to let go and let God. Well, the implication sometimes with that is that we just trust God and then sit on our hands. But David models just the opposite. He teaches us that that, that resting in God's sovereignty still permits us to use our heads. To work actively. Augustine said this, without God, we cannot. But without us, God will not. When we find ourselves in a tough spot, maybe even in a mess of our own making, sure, we should trust God's sovereignty, but then we should accept his gift of wisdom to do the next right thing. Sometimes enduring the consequences of our choices will cause us to kind of sulk and and be introspective and and to tuck ourselves away in isolation and, and to become just overall unmotivated in life because, after all, we can't do anything right. Don't do that. Trust that that, that even your mistake isn't going to thwart God's sovereign purposes in your life. Trust that. And then seek his wisdom for what to do next. Amen? Look at verse 31. We got one more interaction. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. 
Look what David did. He prayed. Oh, Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now, look up here. I need to explain this. Why is David so concerned about Ahithophel? Everybody else is turning on him. I mean, what's the big deal about Ahithophel? Well, Ahithophel is like like the A-team. He was like the all-star counselor. Having him as your counselor would be like having Tom Brady as your quarterback. Aaron Judge is your cleanup hitter. He was the best of the best, this worried David. And so David instantly prayed. He said, God, would you frustrate the counsel of Ahithophel? Ahithophel, sorry. Would you cause what he says to Absalom seem just really foolish? And no sooner did David pray than we see the answer to his prayer. And it's unique. It's surprising. It's an answer that has two feet, torn clothes, and dirty hair. Look at verse 32. And it came to pass that when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshipped God, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat rent and earth upon his head. David instantly knows that this is God's providence. We won't read it, but he instructs the rest of the chapter. He instructs Hushai very carefully. David says, I want you to go back into Jerusalem. And I want you to be Absalom's counselor. I want you to fake support for Absalom so that you can get into the same room with Ahithophel because he's going to be given the king counsel. And when you hear him giving the king counsel, I want you to counteract it and hopefully make his counsel sound really foolish to Absalom. Here's the point. No sooner does David pray and God begins to answer his prayer. That's the final piece of evidence that God was present in David's life, even during his punishment for David's sin. It's this. God gives David an answer to his prayer. No scriptwriter would have written how God was working all this out for David's good. This was an amazing and I would say surprising answer to David's prayer. It's, it's surprising in, in who it is. It's also surprising in how quickly God answered it. I read a story this week about a missionary. This is very, very interesting. It's a missionary by the name of Don McClure who served in Ethiopia during the 1950s. He actually got killed while he was on the mission field. One night, this is such a cool story. He was called to the riverbank to help two women who had brought a young girl over in a canoe. And it was pouring rain outside. She was Lying in blood when the two women lifted her out of the canoe. The missionary noticed that that an umbilical cord had had not been removed. And was being drugged along with her body as he pulled her out of the boat. The girl didn't look any older than the missionary said around 13 years old. The day before she had given birth to a stillborn baby. And the placenta wouldn't detach itself. She lost so much blood that she couldn't stand on her own. So Dr. McClure reached down and lifted her up in his arms. But as he lifted her, she screamed in pain. She grabbed his neck, the story says. That's when the missionary heard one of those two women say, it's out, it's out, it's out. And it was in the dark. Dr. McClure had stepped on the umbilical cord. When he stooped down to pick up the dying girl, when he lifted her up, his foot was still firmly planted on the umbilical cord and it caused the whole placenta to pull free. I know that seems really disgusting. 
But the moral of the story is incredible. Dr. McClure confessed that he wouldn't know what to do if God didn't save her that, lot, that night. He said this, I quote, Who would have guessed God's providence would come through a clumsy foot? Isn't that similar to David's answered prayer? Who would have guessed that the prayer that David just uttered would be answered not only so soon, but through this clumsy civil servant named Hushai? Now, I bet if you took some time, church, to, to do some inventory in your own prayer life tonight, I bet you'd recall one or two surprising ways in which God has answered your prayers and provided for you as well. That's what he does. Sometimes, though, unorthodox as he does it, God says yes to our prayer just so we can know he's still listening. If you're enduring a consequence for your choices, even tonight, maybe you're going through a mess of your own making, hear me, don't quit on God. Keep praying. Keep asking God for what you need in the moment, big or small. Keep depending on Him to provide for you and then do this. Keep track of it when He does. Don't middle, miss the, the, the subtle and, and surprising ways that God says yes. Don't miss the clumsy foot moments of your day when God smiles on you through His ordinary providence. He does this to whisper to you in difficult times. I'm still here. I'm still your God. Apparently these reassurances made a humongous impact on David's faith. You know how I know? Because later he would write an entire song about this moment. And it would be forever included in Israel's songbook. Our choir sings it. Psalm chapter 3. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God, Selah. But thou, O Lord, are a shield for me. My glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. I laid me down and slept. But I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. David said, you know what? I remember going up to the mountain. Got word that my best counselor had turned on me. So I just prayed, God, do something. Do something. And when I went up for my morning devotions the next day, I saw this ragged looking civil servant. And I knew God had heard me out of his holy hill. He had preserved me and sustained me one more day. God's punishment for your sin. Does not nullify God's presence in your life. Twofold purpose for the night, and I'm done. This story can be a warning. And here's how it can be a warning 
Do not let sin control your life. For when sin controls your life, the consequences might be part of your life for a very long time. I'm telling you, David is having to endure evil coming up from his own house for years after his sin. The devil wants to tell us, do what feels good in the moment. Everybody will forget about it later. Everybody will forgive you. You can just go on. It's going to take some time and you know that, but the devil's going to trick you into thinking after, after a couple of years, everybody will just kind of just accept you. No big deal at all. And that might be the truth, but you will face possibly lifelong consequences because you chose to obey the flesh and not the spirit. You chose to do what you felt like in the moment. You got what you wanted, but you lost what you had. So be careful. That's the warning from this text. Be careful. Young people, be careful. Don't mess around with sin. Don't think you can get away with it. Well, my mom did. My my dad did. Did they really? Are you sure? Are you sure there's some things they still deal with? There's probably some things they still deal with today that they don't necessarily talk to you about. Because of their choices. But then it it can be an encouragement too. Not just a warning, but an encouragement. In my office, I, I, just, I, I just wept in prayer this week because my mind went to some people in our congregation that if they could, man, they would rewind. They would hit the rewind button. And some of you would say, I would have never married that person. I never married him. I never married her. The dreaded D word is a part of your story now. And you hate that. See, there are some decisions like that that will affect you in some way the rest of your life. No, I talk, I, I talk to people that, that, that are happily married now and have kids and are serving the Lord. But made a marital mistake way back in the day. And they, it's almost like they're constantly reminded of it in some way. And to you, I want to tell you, God's not done with you. Are you hearing me? God's not done with you. The church isn't done with you. God wants to use you. God wants to bless you. God wants to help you. I can't take away the consequence of that choice. I can't do that. Here's the truth. Maybe heaven's going to be the only thing that erases that. But here's what you need to be assured of tonight. God is still with you. I know some grandparents now that have adult children. I know because they've told me. They said, Tyler, a message I've preached maybe in the last two years or something, they would say, why didn't you preach that 18 years ago? Because I wasn't a preacher 18 years ago. I was causing problems for my parents 18 years ago. What they're saying is not that my message was great. What they're saying is that I wish I would have listened back then. Because now they're seeing the fruit of maybe some parenting neglect. And they're thinking, oh, man. And they might be reminded regularly of a decision they failed to make 
when their kids were 3, 4, 5, 13, 14, 15. And they just want to beat themselves over the head. Well, let me remind you, I can't take away that consequence. But I can tell you, he will never leave you nor forsake you. Because God's punishment for your sin doesn't nullify God's presence in your life. I'm thinking of people that make sexual mistakes. Just like David. Get a girl pregnant or a girl gets pregnant or go to college and just explore with different type of lifestyles. Man, you hate it. You hate it. You do anything to erase it out of your story. Sometimes you look around and say, man, I wouldn't have these struggles. I would be like them or like, like her or like him if I didn't make these decisions. And that's not always true. The devil is going to want you to compare yourself with other people who didn't make those decisions. But now you're years removed from that and you're still reminded. Because you brought those same temptations and, and those same struggles into your marriage today. And, and you just so wish they weren't present. Well, God's still present. He's as present as your consequences are. Some of you over a decade ago blew up and just totally said some hurtful things to somebody you loved. And to this day, the relationship still isn't the same. And you would go back. If you could, you would go back and say, why did I want to win that argument? It made me feel good for about five minutes. But now for five years, I've regretted it. Why did I just have to say that? And you can't take it back. You know that, right? Words can't be taken back. And that person might not trust you the same ever again. I don't know. You might have hurt them so deeply, wounded them so deeply that that they'll forgive you, but they'll never forget that. And you might hate that, but just know that God will forgive you. He's faithful and just to forgive you when you confess your sin. He's with you still. And he'll remind you along the way by an answered prayer, by a loyal friend, by a sweet settleness in his sovereignty, even when... It's a circumstance of your own making. He'll just gift you with those things and remind you. And that's what I want to do tonight as your pastor. Just to tell you, if you're enduring a punishment for your sin, it doesn't nullify God's presence in your life. So let's come to an altar tonight and just thank God that he still hasn't left us or forsaken us.